You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. Our favourite guest, Brendan Ptolemy, Managing Director of Heron Todd White, is back in the studio to have a chat about the market where it's at and provide a little bit of a lead into the very exciting episode we have teed up next week which is with our Minister for Planning, Housing, Homelessness and Lands, John Kerry. Brendo, thank you very much for coming in. You've got a bit of a tan going on there. <laughs> Thanks, Trent. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm off the plane. I arrived back in Perth at 1 o'clock from LA. That's a bit of a gruelling travel schedule. LA, Melbourne, Melbourne, Perth. Great fun. A family event, obviously. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people have been travelling to the Northern Hemisphere, most to Europe, to be honest. So yeah. you're the only one I know going to America. Yeah, were the planes full? Plane on the way over was not full. So we did that new flight that goes Sydney, Auckland, New York. So you skip right over US and the economy section of that plane, that's where I had to sit. Front end of that plane seemed to be pretty full. Really good way to get there, I must say. And then the flight back from LA to Melbourne was really chockers. And same for the flight going to Brisbane from LA too. I wonder if it's the same story coming into Perth. I haven't checked tourism data recently. Obviously, it does affect the property market. But I wonder if just as many people are traveling here as we've got traveling to the rest of the world. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to know because places like Broome and Exmouth are still really busy with local travellers from WA. Exmouth now has those Melbourne Exmouth flights going, those types of opportunities for intrastate and international travel. Certainly from my experience in terms of airports across New York, Vegas, LA, everyone is travelling. They were chaotic. Well, we'll talk to the regional market in our regional market episode in a few weeks because I'd love to hear how that market's going. There's a few interesting calls you guys have made on the property clock there about some of our regional markets. Yep. Moved a little bit around the clock there. Let's talk to the Perth market. That is our focus for today. There's quite a few things to talk about. Firstly, I think it's important to get an update. We've had a few listeners write in to us saying, can we update a little bit more often on where the demand supply situation is, a bit of a weekly update. So as a weekly update, we are sitting at about 5,245 properties on the supply side, aren't we, Brendan? Yeah, that's right. So that's this week's REWA listings of those 2,442 houses. So as we have touched on in the past, it is phenomenal that we have a city of 2 million odd people with a supply of only 2,442 single residential dwellings available in the marketplace. If you think about any other product that was that undersupplied, it would be front page news every day of the week. It would lead to massive price growth inflation, you might call it actually, Absolutely. Uh, in that product, which is something we can segue into quickly. We had some recent data from Rewa come out last week, suggesting we've just hit new records. Where are we at with that? Yeah, so median house price at the minute is $555,000, and that is just single residential dwellings and judged by Rewa. That's yep. the average of the house and units, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. The point I reckon that we should really make here is that I think that's underselling our market. So if you look at where that was three years ago, so June 2020, it was $477,000. It's increased 16.35% In three to years. today's date. That's- I don't know about that, Brent. I feel like most of the suburbs in Perth, if you look at them suburb by suburb, have increased more than 16%. Exactly. In- one of those years. Yeah, exactly. And so really my caution to everyone is that let's remember that this statistic 
music is medium. It's not being influenced upwards by activity. It's being influenced downwards by activity. And by that, I mean there are a lot of sales at the bottom end of the market at the 555 or below. That's consistently, you know, we look at some of those suburbs. There's Ellenbrook and Baldivis and those types of large suburbs that Huge are selling volumes. 20 sales a week. And that means that that brings that median down. Fun fact, Peppermint Grove, probably the ritziest suburb in Western Australia, often doesn't get spoken about because there's little to no data that comes out of there. Very small suburb and local government, for those who don't know as well, one of the only suburbs that's also a local government. Yes, they might get three or four sales a year, wouldn't yep. they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so then if you expand from there and look at, say, the supply in Cottesloe at the minute, I looked at the start of the week, every single property listed on realestate.com was under offer. So wow. then the, the listings have come through, check this morning, there's probably about four or five brand new listings sitting there that the agents obviously list towards the end of the week to get some interest. But that just shows you that if there's no supply there and therefore not a whole lot of sales, we can't influence the median house price upwards. So That's right. So the message to listeners would be take a look at the median house price, have a listen to it. If it's going up, that's good. It's better than going down. However, that number of growth really is not representative of uh, where your property is in your suburb. Yeah, and it's the number that gets a lot of attention. So that probably is sub- meaning that there's subdued attention around our property market. And by that, I mean, I think the market's moving, as you alluded to earlier, but there's not a lot of press around it from the East Coast or here in, in WA because people can't see the median moving in a dramatic fashion. Yeah, um, people look at the median like it's the ASX index. Yeah. No one invests in the ASX index of property in Western Australia. There's no. no Perth property index, is there? Yeah. No, exactly. And so therefore, while we're talking about it, really, I'm trying to get to the point that people should be confident about the market, that it's actually a good time to buy. And if you look at that really simple statistic of 16.35% over three years, then you're making a 5% increase per annum on your on your money. And we're pretty certain across this table that that 5% would be exceeded in most suburbs anyway. Top five suburbs for growth last year. Number one was Winthrop. Winthrop, $1.2 million median there, a 25% increase. Now, I'm not sure I believe either of those stats on a house-for-house basis in the fact that I'm not sure that your property on Winthrop has gone up 25% year on year. But however, that just shows the fallacy in the data points there yep. is that it's a subset of last year's sales to this year's sales. They're not revaluing every single property in the suburb and doing some value or general service to the society, which yeah, yeah. might be helpful actually. Yep. But what they are doing is just going, well, these 30 properties sold in the suburb last year, these sold this year, these ones sold for as a median 25% more than these ones. We really need to be cautious both in an upwards and downwards direction about what that means for our property individually. And the only way you're going to know that really is to put your property on the market or look at the properties on your street and see what they've been going for. Yeah, there are a couple of suburbs that have had some attention in terms of value increase. And one of the ones that is the favorite for to be discussed around the office at the minute is the East Coast investors coming into a location like Armadale. It really bottomed out in value probably about three years ago. And the value increase there has been probably an easy, in terms of cash, $100,000 value increase on an average three by one on a decent sized block in there. And so that shows you why the statistics are showing up to buyers agents in the east coast and they're saying quick we've got to get into this location the rent's good and it's had a decent value increase and it'll keep going from here one other thing that you're alluding to when we're talking about the fallacies of the median house price as a statistic to track that it's a very mobile market there's not a lot of friction 
below the median house price, but there is a lot of friction above. It's very hard to get transactions, not because people aren't able to buy, because most people at that level actually can't find somewhere to downsize to. Yeah. yeah so there's a, a real theme running through the marketplace and it's the detail sitting behind the supply side story. And that is, if you want to move somewhere, you can't either upsize or downsize because it is so difficult to go and find the product that you're after. So if you take the downsizer market, there's no luxury apartment supply for them to wholesale move into in the location that they would like to select, i.e. probably around the corner from where they live already. And then if you talk about the upgrade market, you're sitting on your existing house and you've got that real dilemma around, I know the rental market's tight, so I can't move out or sell my house. How do I transact or manage the transaction process from getting out of my house into the new house whilst I still secure accommodation for myself and my family. One of the things we're saying to brokers at the moment is if your client is looking around and they think they're going to roll up to a home open and literally buy that weekend, it's just not possible. You need Mm. to have everything in place. So go to your broker or your banker, get your pre-approvals, get all your documents sorted out, make sure that you're ready pretty much to make a cash offer on anything that you are interested in. Let's be really careful about the term cash offer. Essentially, that does not mean that you've got $750,000 in the bank that you're paying cash. It means that you have a pre-approval that you're able to go and offer to that level and you're really confident you've got the money in the bank or that you have that loan secured in order to pay that. I'm 33. I've got a handful of mates ready to buy that family home, that first family home, I guess, after the initial investment property they might have had or the initial unit. They've been genuine buyers for over a year, some two years, and still cannot either find anything that they would put their money to or just not winning at the negotiation table at the end of the day. Yep. That's me in my stage of life. You're that next generation above me, Brendan. Uh, what's it like for you and your mates? Well, it's pretty stagnant, to be honest. There's a few that have been out buying opportunities to knock over and, and rebuild. There's a few upgrade buying, but mainly, uh, and I'm 50-odd I'm years of age with relatively young kids for my age, a lot of families sitting on their hands saying, well, we've got our accommodation and our family home and we like where we live Kids are close to school and recreation areas and those kinds of things. So we'll sit tight where we are. And I do wonder if we surveyed that group and said, oh, what do you, don't you like about your house and would you upgrade if you had the opportunity, how many would take that opportunity? You've got that demographic in terms of your age, to be fair, where probably the highest percentage of people who have the ability to be an investor. Yep. How many mates around the barbecue are you talking to who are interested in being an investor right now or not, and if they are, how successful are they in just acquiring housing? I think there's a fair portion that are interested, but they're interested from a distance. And by that, I mean they've looked, they look at one home open, see the stampede and go, gee, this is way too hard. Few being invested in lifestyle, so buying in the southwest, that type of scenario. So moving to that next stage, you're going, we'll need the holiday home in the future or it's a good investment because the return from Airbnb is really good. So that becomes that extra decision-making point. In terms of going around Perth and buying, say, units or straight-out single residential investment properties, not a lot of activity at this point in time. They are probably overrun by investors coming from the East Coast. Exactly what's happening, right? 
guys on the East Coast, they are rabid dogs right now. They are over here paying whatever they have to because they see value. They've lived it before. We've spoken about that before. Yep. Uh, and they're competing with people who were burnt twice. Yeah. They see our price point because it's relative to their market. So whether you're coming from Brisbane, Melbourne or Sydney, their price point is much higher than ours. And so we look cheap. And we see records. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, We've just yep. broken a, an all-time record in the last few months, obviously. Yep. The 2014 price we've just got back to. And we yeah, see, yeah. oh, that's a bit expensive. Yeah, exactly. And so the dilemma for our valuers who are out seeing those contracts come through for finance is essentially those people are paying 5, 10, 20 grand more than they know the locals offered. That's the story they hear from the real estate agent. And so the challenge is, is it really worth that if there's a, an interstate buyer? making the purchase let's talk about people wanting to add supply to the market first mm. one being someone trying to build a home yep a lot of people i think would be struggling with that not just because of the obvious extra cost you know 50 percent more cost to build that home than it was three years ago yep but the real practical issue of well if i want to knock my house over and build a home or i want to buy that block of land and build a home i need to find somewhere to move out to and rent first yeah and that's harder than any of the things we've spoken about renting is the most critically undersupplied market that not many people seem to have any answers for at the moment. It's not going to get any better anytime soon. So it's funny how the issue of the rental market being so undersupplied, we look at that and go, oh, that's affecting tenants. It's also affecting anyone wanting to add any supply through construction. Yep, it doesn't matter which section of the market you're in there. Obviously, construction costs have been up. They have leveled out and and some of the stats are saying they're coming back. But I think if you go shopping for a brand new product, you're not going to feel like you're getting a bargain or that it got cheaper in the last few months. That's simply statistics showing that prices should be correcting slightly. So they went up by 30%. They've come back down potentially by about 10%. I don't think it's making it that much better for anyone. The really interesting part about that process is the cost to either hold something that you can live in in terms of finance or go and rent in between has gone through the roof essentially. So it makes that whole process so much more expensive. Or the mobility to do it in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Even yeah. if people aren't price sensitive to that, they put it this way: if I was kicked out of my rental tomorrow, I would probably be back home with the parents. Yes, and yeah. I should not be in that position in my phase of life. Yeah. Right? No, you should buy more property to live. <laughs> yeah, exactly place right. of residence. I might right. have to kick out one of my tenants <laughs> so I can live in one of those properties that I have as as a landlord, right? Yeah, and that's yeah. that's an issue you never want to have to face. No, exactly. Um, let's talk to demand quickly, and that's the weekly transactions that we have in Perth. We uh, just had 807 transactions last week, which quite serendipitously was exactly the amount of transactions of the same week last year. And that has been a trend for a while now. That whilst we're about 100 transactions a week lower than four or five months ago, that's fairly normal in winter, isn't it? It's seasonal where it's around 800s the last few years in winter, and then it picks back up to the 900s and even about 1,000 when it gets to school holidays. Yeah, exactly. And so interesting, that four weeks ago is 8.18, and then the same week last year is 8.07. It's just unbelievable how close all those numbers are. I think those numbers are really good for this time of year. In particular, I think we should think about the concept of it being school holidays at the minute and a lot of people being distracted and being away, as well as the fact that, from my memory, this is one of the coldest, wettest, ordinary winters that we've had in a long time. And that really stops people making transaction decisions because we're pretty fickle from that point of view in the Perth market. It's important to have context. And the one context piece I can give to the listeners is that 800 was the average transaction number through the mining boom. Yeah, and that's... And that's um, so our, this is our winter number yeah. right now. 
Yeah, and so if we can pick up on that point in terms of this cycle and that mining boom cycle where the 12, 13, 14 rise in property prices, which was exponential, dramatic, front page paper news every day. It was property fever. It was absolutely going crazy. And that was essentially driven by immigration and people coming from overseas on the back of a mining construction boom. Short term. Yeah, very short term. So what we're thinking is that we had 62-odd thousand people move to Perth in the last 12 months or so. You know, we haven't had that in a decade. Yes. Not even close. Yeah. We've had 62,000 people in five years. Yep. So it's a standout statistic. And what we can see in terms of the makeup of those people coming here is that they're looking to stay here longer term. So just to note that that's interstate and overseas migration number combined. And the other thing I looked at there was that that makes up, there's about a half a million people moved to Australia in that same period of time. And we make up 12.5% of the population increase there. So we're kind of punching above our weight. Yeah, for the first time in a, a fairly long time. I think it's really encouraging from that point of view. But then the first question that comes to mind is where are they going, are to, they go? going to rent? Where are they going to buy? Well, let's think about you know 60,000 people on average need 30,000 homes. Yes. We have two people per home. Yep, That's absolutely. how it works in, in Western Australia. That's the average, been that for a long time. So we need 30,000 new homes just for the people coming here. Yes. We're already undersupplied and we built about 14,000 homes last year. Yep. We don't really ever build more than 25,000 in the biggest booms we have. And the capacity of our market right now is maxing out at about 14,000 homes. We don't have any more trades. I'm on site every day with our developments. We do. And every day is a a disappointment of, oh, sorry, I don't have traders for this. Oh, this person's on this job. Every trader isn't doing one job. They're scooting between four jobs, keeping four people unhappy. Yeah, yeah. Right? So uh, (laughs) Keeping four people unhappy. It's it's very frustrating right now. And it's simply... A product of the fact that we are sitting at our capacity right now. The mining industry sucks every tradie out of Perth as quick as possible. And that's where we are right now, where if you think about the environment with which prices can drop, well, supply has to be greater than demand. Yep. It's pretty straightforward numbers right there, right? Just yep. within new people coming in, we need 30,000 homes. Yep. We only build 14,000 at capacity right now. Yes. So what must happen to prices in that situation? They only go one way, Brendan. Yeah. And we know that immigration won't stop overnight. In fact, it may even go up mm. given the proposition in terms of unemployment rate sitting at about 35 3%. We're only just getting out of COVID. Let's remember from a visa point of view, things take yep. time. Exactly. I think the dilemma and I think that probably that crisis kind of leading on to John Kerry coming in is actually for people to realise that the people that control the purse strings and the possibility on policy to realise that there actually is a full-blown crisis at our feet. It's not just homeless people. It's people across the whole continuum of property. Yeah, or already at the stage of families sharing houses and those kinds of, like two families in one house, those kinds of scenarios. People are making their own arrangements and getting desperate. I do believe there's a lot of empty bedrooms out there. We've seen some recent examples of granny flats with three bedrooms in them being rented at $200 a week for the bedroom plus costs, 600 bucks a week for a granny flat. That's that only crazy. happens in an environment like this, yep. right? Yeah, yeah. We only talk about living some big bang theory friends lifestyle where we have share houses and share apartments in yep. environments like this. Yep. Otherwise, everyone would rather have their own place, wouldn't they? Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of how those big cities operate. You know, I lived in London and for a while where it is all just share houses and, and you literally do rent a bedroom. But we've had some solutions in the past. You know, we constructed short and long term accommodation like the state government 
took control of things like the Nolimba. It was essentially an immigration centre for people coming here as started as that 10-pound POM type scenario where they were accommodated for a week or two. They were supplied with food and somewhere for the kids to go to school and bedroom accommodation, obviously, and kitchen facilities and stuff like do we have to get back to those types of uh, concepts and say, okay, we're, we're really good at building dongers, so why don't we build a, <laughs> a mining camp for workers in the city so that people can have a touchdown point when they get here? I, we just need some I, I some think society ideas. has moved past that in terms of accepting you know, some sort of camp for people to move in. I just don't think we would accept that yeah. as being part of what we provide. Yeah, yeah. It's damned if you do, damned if you don't for John Kerry in this space because the solution really from big government, labor, left-wing position would just be we'll do it we'll build it all we'll fix the problem yeah but what you do there is just add massive issues with regards to the throughput the pipeline for the rest of the private industry and you just make everything more expensive just yep. like metronet has done just like all the road projects have done they've made all the retaining all the sewer lining everything f- multiples more expensive for everyone else to develop and provide to the market yeah so that every time that the the government gets involved they just make it more expensive for the whole market right because right? yeah. they're, they're paying more up all of the labor force essentially yep. they're yep. not profit driven they're simply just paying what they have to to deliver outcomes by the next election cycle so it just makes everything more expensive and far more wasteful in all these sort of ways so i I think it's hard to suggest that that the solution would be for the government to just go and build thousands of apartments or properties at whatever cost yep because it sustains everything as a more expensive outcome in the first place i think it's it's about fixing the market mechanisms with which we could increase our capacity to build in the first place yep so luke parker who's the managing director of op prop an apartment developer. He's got a great development in uh, Nutsford Street in East Fremantle. Yep. Yep. Uh, Montreal Commons. He had this great idea and the Property Council conference last week where we actually bring people in who have these skills of being plasterers, chippies, brickies, right? That's not profound, but that the visa required them to work in the city, not in a mining town, yep. for the next four or five years to help yeah, solve yeah. this supply issue in the cities. Yeah, right? yeah. Even if you were to work regionally, you can't work for a mining company. It must be in residential construction. Yep. Because that's the only answer we've got. The core of everything, even if you push away policy, you push away, well, the foreign buyer surcharge is killing us. The first homeowner's grant could be updated. This POS policy is outrageous. The Aboriginal cultural heritage policy, outrageous. Even if you pushed all them aside and fixed those, yep. you would still have a capacity issue in the construction market. We still need 30,000 houses a year. We only have 14,000 houses of capacity in the market of brickies and chippies. So we need to bring people in. The issue is, where are they going to live? The only way to fix that, even if you had a visa that fixed this problem that said you have to work in residential construction, is we have to free up the rental market, Brendan. Yep. How are we going to free up the rental market? There's only two ways. You add supply, you reduce demand. Yep. Well, how do we add supply? We have to incentivize investors somehow. Normally, that's just market. So the first thing you do is make sure there's no risk of rent capping. The yep. Greens are off their trolley at the moment thinking that that's a good idea. Yeah. But they're winning. East Coast, it's happening in the East Coast. Yeah, right? yeah. Yep. Uh, and the second thing you do is help people stop demanding rentals so by getting them out of the rental market and into the ownership market. Yeah, absolutely. How yeah. do we do that? So there needs to be a product for them to buy. Um, I, I think that we really did miss the boat. If you go back five years in that time frame where we had a lot of local councils stymieing development and stymieing approvals, I, I know they've got their reasons and that, that, that places uh, that local authorities need to be involved in some of the planning approval process. But now the whole of the market's paying for it and there's no consequence for those councillors that were 
making those decisions that potentially were self-interested, whether it's for the local suburb or for themselves or whatever the case scenario. But that level of government have got to take some responsibility for restricting the supply into our marketplace. There's just no doubt that as a growing up city or in a, a maturing city that we don't have enough high density accommodation in near city locations that has infrastructure already constructed. That is a, an issue in the fabric of our planning system is that the local governments have so much control and little accountability. Yep. The state government cop all the flack for not being able to deliver supply when it's actually the local government with the noose around the neck of developers. It's interesting to watch the effect of the council's resisting approval of development applications. So driving up and down Stirling Highway at the minute, you've now got a situation within a few hundred metres of each other. You've got the Chellingworth site, which is closed, the car yard's gone, it's sitting there as a clean site, just waiting to be graffitied and vandalised and all that kind of stuff. And it's a huge site. It's, it's really big. Then across the road and up the road, you've got the old, I think it was the Captain Stirling Shopping Centre. There used to be an IGA in there. That's owned by Aldi. That is now graffitied broken windows, fences around it, looks really ordinary. And then next door to that is the Captain Sterling Hotel, which is essentially owned by Woolworths. And there's some houses out the back that they've owned for a number of years whilst they've waited for their approval to come along. They're vandalised or being demolished. It looks really ordinary. And you have to stand back from it and say, well, councillors, look, did you expect this? Uh, are you experienced enough to understand that by resisting the development, you've ended up in this situation? Is that the best thing for the people, mm. the residents, the people you represent within that location? I know there was lots of resistance for good reasons and bad reasons, and but the outcome that they've got at this point in time in the cycle of the market is really ordinary. And now they've landed in a space where some of that development's not actually viable because it's so expensive to build. Yeah. Uh, Imagine if it happened five years ago. Yeah. It would have been up. You'd have a whole bunch of people who can now serve. Woolworths is not going to go in there until there's enough people to service. Yep. Now, to have enough people to service, you need development along that highway getting some critical mass. Yeah, exactly. And they've obviously done the demographic study. They're really smart. These people, they understand that it's a place they need to be in the future. But you can't let the suburb degenerate whilst you wait for all the approvals to come along and the construction to commence. Yeah, Yeah. well, they'll point the finger at, well, it went through the proper due process and now it's just unfortunate that it's become too expensive to build most of this stuff. That will be the response. And the councillors are actually still able to stand back and say, we didn't approve this. The state government has. And that's right. And look, this is one of the... I guess the positive things to come out of the state government is that they are continually looking to improve their state approvals process, the JDAP. For the most part, I, don't, I mean, I'm not a fan of a couple of the JDAP members who definitely are not competent enough to be on that panel, but for the most part, most are very competent and remove the political nature of their decision-making for the betterment of the community. And that's why we're seeing things like Chellingsworth finally got approved. OBH you finally got the OBH approved. finally yep. approved yep. as well. This is going to start bringing some accessibility to the best amenities in our city yep. to regular people who might not be able to afford a thousand square meters with a mansion on it, but they could certainly afford a two by two on this on Sterling Highway. Yeah, or a one by one in a great location that's close to schools, universities, the city, and amenity. Yeah, it's really interesting to see how that evolves and whether that diversity in that pipeline comes along. In the last quarter, there was zero apartment complex commenced construction. No surprises. Uh, and then, as we've gone from June into July, there's a two complexes that are just starting out of the ground at this point in time there we go these would be the first ones in nearly a year yep. coming out of the ground they're not massive they're not bringing 250 apartments to the market we're not talking huge complexes here you know we're talking about tops 100 apartments across those developments yeah well tim willing just got his apartment development in Corbinia oh, approved, approved as well. uh, yep. last week the city of sterling were uh, sounds like 
whilst taking the time to do their due diligence properly, generally supportive of it. Interestingly enough, the guy's got, I think it's one or two levels uh, approved higher than the acceptable outcome in the zoning there, which is just demonstrating that the only way that these developers are getting their apartment developments to work financially is they need a bit more height. Is that not something you think the government should be looking into more is is to use the incentive of extra height to maybe ask for a bit more in the ESG green space? I'm pretty sure the Canning Bridge Precinct did this pretty well where they had height limits for, you know, maybe eight stories in the M8 area, but you can do an extra two stories if you meet certain green standards. What would be the big problem of that, for example, turning a four-story building into a six-story building? Yeah, and look, I firmly believe that there's two things going on there. One is that the council should be worried about what's happening on the ground to make sure that the amenity happens on the ground. Like, Don't go to the developer and say, it's all got to be retail on the ground floor, thanks very much for coming. Go to the developer and say, what we need is for you to activate the street by doing X, Y, and Z, and we want to make sure that you put a coffee shop in there or a childcare centre or whatever the case might be on the ground floor to activate the space to make sure that the suburb still looks good from a ground floor level. Once it's built, I can guarantee you no one comes along later on and says, gee, that was going to be six stories. It's such a pity it's eight now. No one will notice as long as the street is activated and well looked after and creates a community feel. Preaching in the choir there, Brendan. The amount of people that I've spoken to, it's funny how even people in the building and development industry, when they're a neighbor, turn to NIMBYs themselves. I've had people say, oh, it's zoned for five stories. I can't believe they're going for seven and they're going to get it approved. That's not fair. They should be paying more as if it affects people. Yeah. You know, how many people actually look up and go, oh, Jesus Christ, that one degree of my viewpoint up there on the way to looking at the sun is really affected now, right? Yeah. And I think the thing that we all need to remember there and why you and I are passionate about that density is that it actually creates a community. Creates it communities. Cre- and you get you one put, chance, Brendan. Yeah, it means that you get a better ground floor outcome. You yep. get two coffee shops instead of one. You get the French patisserie and the coffee shop to choose from. You get more services around and you get safer streets because there's people in the street. We need people to start getting that and hopefully a bit more of if we can tie it back to that travel will help people. The more people can travel and, and see other cities around the world who are yep. all functioning perfectly fine with five, six stories, seven stories. One great example of people around and they can drop through is the, the cafes that have been activated down the in Glide Street in Mozzie Park there. Always been a really active local area, yep. but Pact have recently um, finished Noma in there. There's a great, I can't remember the name of it, but I've had a couple of coffees from the coffee shop next door and it is absolutely fantastic. Wouldn't be and there without the apartments. Absolutely. And going crazy. It's mm. just absolutely fantastic. The same people in that area who would have screamed bloody murder about these apartment buildings going up, saying it's going to ruin their lives and now sitting there having a coffee on the ground floor. Yeah. And that product, it, it looks amazing from the straight and looks amazing inside as well. Yeah. Hey, one thing that we don't talk about often enough that is actually a real impactor on our market. And I don't know how they get off scot-free all the time are the banks. Yep. We were talking off-air before the episode, and obviously you have a lot of touch points here being a valuer, about how the banks covertly influence the ability for the market to provide supply to the community. If you think about it, banks are the biggest investors in property in the country. Yep. When a developer goes in with their 30%, the bank brings 70 Yeah. You think that the developer is the owner of the project. Actually, it's the bank. They've got the mortgage. They've got more money in it than any developer will have. Yeah, absolutely. And it's their policies 
that define how easy it is for certain housing types to get developed at certain times in the cycle. Yeah, and it's been really interesting that for good reason, the banks have gotten shy in terms of lending to developers. They got burnt pretty badly on some East Coast developments. 20 years ago? Uh, Well, yeah, in the last cycle. So uh, Project 3 Queensland where the big four had some exposure to and that really changed their thinking around policy and whether they needed to be in that marketplace. But I think what the problem is, is it's like anything that where you find an issue and you've made a mistake, they've overcorrected massively on their policy and that essentially is restricting funding and finance going to multi-residential development essentially Mm. from the major banks. The void is being filled by other suppliers and that's great, but we need to maybe stand back from that and say, if you can't finance something at an equitable rate, then it's not going to create any supply. And that could actually be one of the real blockages we've got here that we haven't explored enough as a society to say, there's no finance there, so therefore the supply won't come. I'm a client across all the big four banks, a number of the second tier banks and some non-bank lenders as well. So I've got a good understanding as a client and a broker on where things are sitting. And it's very obvious that across the different housing types, there are some real roadblocks from a financing perspective. For example, we've got a handful of two hectare infill developments that we're doing around Perth. Three of the big four banks wouldn't finance the project. The fourth one would finance it at an LVR of 30%. Right. Right, which means essentially you sit there and go, what's the point? So unless I could move to a non-bank lender who had the risk profile, they're really pushing into this space because they see it as minimal risk, for example. We're selling out our 36 lot land developments before titles. Yes. They come in there with a higher interest rate, with a line fee, with an establishment fee, all these things that are all a bit more than what the big four would have charged, making it more expensive for me to deliver those 36 lots in Canyon Vale to the market. Whereas Bank West, Westpac could have just jumped straight in there and gone, look, yeah, we'll do this. This is great. However, policy is, well, we only lend to 10 companies nationally in the land development space over four lots. And you look at that and go, well, I can see why you don't see a lot of diversity in the offerings of housing supply in Western Australia, because it's only 10 large land developers, your Stocklands, your Peets, your Satterleys, who are actually getting any financing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and have a, a balance sheet that can manage that. Um, the and other, you go to apartments. Yes, yeah, exactly. And then I was just going to bring up the other part of that is just beyond the finance bit, it is extraordinarily difficult to get anything up anyway in terms of design and regulation. And, and so making the finance part of it a hard piece to go with all the other bits that are really difficult to do just means that we end up with only a, a certain number of companies that are able to create that supply for us. That's right. So at the moment, the only people that have got apartment developments going up right now are the big big companies. So you either your Blackburns or your Finbars, your Edges who have got huge money behind them internationally yep. or within the family yep. or guys who are bringing money in from Malaysia or Singapore who are yep. coming in, some of those mid-tier groups. And to explain to people out there who don't understand how financing works in apartments, as a developer, you might have a project that has 40 apartments with an end value of $20 million, just around numbers, yep. right? A bank will say, well, look, we'll lend you 65% of that and you need to pre-sell 100% of the value of that debt anyway. Yep. So the bank is 100% covered, essentially. They got all pre-sales on the $13 million and then the developer has to stump up the other $7 million in his own money Yes. before he can even start the development, right? And what that means is that unless we get... 13 million pre-sales, which would be 26 of the 40 apartments pre-sold. Yes. He can't start because the bank won't give him the money. Yep. 
a couple of things happen there. One, it puts the project out a year or two trying to get 26 of these apartments pre-sold to people who aren't sure when or if ever this apartment development will get going. Yep. They're pre-selling it at a discounted price really just to get people in. Yes. So they're not actually maximizing the return that they would if they could sell at the end. And then obviously because it's delayed, it puts these risks that have obviously come straight into the market now where so many of these projects, if they weren't hamstrung by 100% pre-sale requirements from the banks, would have got building three years ago, Brendan. Yes. But because they couldn't get pre-sales in COVID... They're yep. certainly not getting them now yep. and they're not getting them at the price they need with the build contract being 40% more than it was would have been three years ago. Yeah, spot on. So the situation in financing for apartments, whilst there are more banks that will finance apartments, the noose around the neck of developers has made it so much riskier and it takes so much longer to get these off the ground because of it. Yep. And therefore, we have no apartments. You wonder why there's no properties available for rent in the market right now. There are no apartments that have been developed because the banks aren't actually playing ball, sharing a bit of that risk with the developer, with the builder, right? Yeah. You look at the way it is in China. It's very interesting in China, the different way they do it. They get the pre-buyers to actually progress pay along the way rather than needing all those pre-sales. Yeah, that's interesting. So then you're almost on each individual finance, obviously, drawing down like you do on a single residential construction. It's exactly like a single residential. All the owners essentially got their own build going on with progress payments. Maybe yeah. that's something we need to look into to share a bit of the risk around. And it's interesting, the, the feedback we're getting from pre-sales, buyers are savvy enough to be standing there saying, when are you going to start building? And they're not committing at all mm. to pre-sales It's a Mexican in this standoff right yeah. now, isn't it? So they'll, they'll only commit to something that they can see construction started. The only way I see this problem being solved is our treasurer, Rita Safiotti, getting brave, getting pragmatic, and removing the foreign buyer surcharge to start having a sales pitch to the Asian market where they have no issue buying off the plan apartments because they've yep. lived in them since they were born. Yep. Coming across here and being that first swathe of pre-buyers, the ballast to get things moving so a developer yep. can go, yeah, we've already got 20 sold. Yep. You can be number 21. Yeah, yeah. And if they've bought up 10% of the complex, what's our problem with that? Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. They're the people that are getting it off the ground. It's not costing us anymore. In fact, we're actually getting more money in stamp duty, which I've spoken about before on this podcast, from these people actually coming back to Perth again. Yeah. Brendan, it's been a fantastic discussion on these points today. As we said at the start of the episode, Minister John Kerry will be in next week. I'm very excited about that. I'm sure you are too. You're the last person on this podcast to speak before he comes in. You've got the final word. What is the message to our minister? The weight of expectation. Look, I think the supply side issue needs strong leadership. So we need new ideas there. We've talked about some here, but... That's the challenge sitting in front of him. Strong leadership. He's clearly got the personality to do that. And he's clearly had that uh, the form in terms of the way he's conducted himself as a minister in the past. So just looking forward to him bringing that leadership to that portfolio and some new ideas to try and solve that supply side issue. Be brave. Be brave, absolutely. Brendan Ptolemy, Managing Director of Heron Todd White. As always, such a fantastic morning having a chat with you. And uh, look forward Thanks to for speaking me, with you in a few weeks about the regional market. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!